0: Welcome back to World Beat. I am George Collins. And to remind you, we are talking with Kathleen Semenyu. And so Kathleen, we were just, we left off on the last segment, not just talking about the power of language, but the implications over who audiences are or who target audiences are in terms of things like development. And I think with science and technology in particular, that's a really interesting one. And I remember there was a An article in Nature from August of 2021 that you contributed to that led with, uh, quote, and this is referring to um, the uh, Zulu uh, folks down in Southern Africa, quote, there's no original EC Zulu word for dinosaur. Germs are called, uh, I'm not going to say this right, I apologize, folks, (laughs) but uh, germs are called amagewane. but there are no separate words for viruses or bacteria, a quark. Is Ikwaki. Uh, there is no term for redshift, though. And researchers and science communicators using the language, which is spoken by more than 14 million people in Southern Africa, struggle to agree on words for evolution. Now, isiZulu Zulu is one of approximately 2,000 languages spoken on the African continent, and modern science has ignored the overwhelming majority of these languages. Although now a team of researchers from Africa wants to change that. And I remember you specifically saying in that article that African languages are being left behind in this online revolution. So there's a couple of directions that I think of with that. And you've uh, started to touch on a couple of them. But to start with, when it comes to just science education, whether that's uh, in school at the elementary level all the way up through the collegiate level, what does the lack of just even fundamental vocabulary, things that folks in, say, North America and Europe would take for granted that you know we've got just a single word for this, what impact does that have on the ability for science education to really flourish in mm-hmm. countries like this?
1: Um, I think it, it reinforces the notion that you need to learn a major Western language if you want to work in science or in other such niche fields. Because I can communicate very adequately in Kiswahili if I'm going to the market to buy food or if I'm going to the hospital and need assistance. I can say... Hey, can I see a doctor? My stomach is aching or I can say, hey, give me those tomatoes. They look riper than the other ones. But then I can't, um, I can't walk into computer science class and start giving a lecture about speech recognition in Kiswahili. Because even I don't know the vocabulary. And so it's, it, it reinforces and emphasizes that, hey, if you want that upward mobility, then you actually have to, for the better part, conform and learn English or learn French or whatever language it is, um, in that context. So with being left behind, um, I think it's, it's Vukosi. Marivate, um, and he's a researcher from South Africa who said that we're probably at an inflection point where if machines don't know your language, then it's very possible that it's going to, that your language is going to be extinct in a certain number of years. And I sometimes think that we as techies sort of over, overstate the impact of technology, but then I think that's very true because We're now seeing a greater reliance on digital platforms. Um, computers are really taking over very many varied aspects of our lives. And that means that not only will I need to learn English to participate, but then to survive. It becomes, it becomes a question of, um, survival. And it also becomes a tool through which we kill other languages because I I hardly think a future exists where people say, for example, speak only Kiswahili and therefore are not able to use computers or use mobile phones. I think it's much more plausible that a future exists where Kiswahili is no longer spoken and we've all drifted towards maybe using only English and then can access all these other platforms. Um I read an article um, also maybe a year or two back speaking about accents because accent recognition is also a very key aspect to access, especially access to applications that are voice enabled. Um, and the, the article was speaking about the fact that Google now has a Nigerian accent voice um, for various applications. So I know that on maps, whenever I use maps, the lady that's giving me directions is speaking in a Nigerian accent and I love it. Um, and so the article was talking about the fact that it was describing a scenario where uh, a couple of guys might be sitting, having drinks, friends, talking, laughing. And then, um, one of them says, Hey, actually, I wonder what the weather is like to be in Kilifi. And so it takes out their phone, but then when interacting with their voice assistant, they switch to an American accent. And it comes very naturally, very instinctively, because they realize that if they sounded like themselves, the voice assistant is not going to understand what they're saying. And so they very, learn, they very quickly learn to adapt and change how it is they are so they are able to be understood. Um, and I think. I think this can be compared to facial recognition, right? Because facial recognition systems could give you access to a room, but if performance is better for a white man than it is for me, a black woman, then he's more likely to always get access whenever he's walking in versus me. But I think facial recognition is of much more urgency because I can't fake being a white man. So that recognition is better for me, right? If the system is unable to recognize my face as me, it means I'm not accessing that room. But if it's in the case of a voice assistant and the system is not able to understand me as myself, a black woman, I can, if I can, adapt my voice to sound like, you know, white male or whatever demographic is going to be much better understood. Um, and I think it's, it's, again, an example of how Diversity is increasingly being flattened for access to various systems. We cannot come onto the internet and interact with the Swahili, so we have to sort of, you know, get rid of that diversity and conform. And what's the conforming language? English. Um, and I'll say many things are being left behind. If we take it back to, to the conversation about culture and history, we're almost being forced to forget everything that makes us us for us to sort of get access to these things, which are supposed to be future facing and, and forward leaning.
0: Hmm. Well, And to that point, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the American sociologist Ruha Benjamin. Um, she, uh, she wrote this great book, um, from, I think 2019 is when it was published called race after technology. And mm-hmm. she explores a lot of these themes, um, Strictly in the American context, about looking at technology is always hyped up as this way of the future, right? Especially in um, in what we think of as the Web two era, where um, there was all of this forward look. Well, you mentioned the Social Network that film earlier, which really seems to capture that zeitgeist of that era. That Facebook and all of these tech companies were going to lead us into these new horizons that we could just never imagine um Mm no that at least stateside that seems to have dampened a little bit in the wake of um 2016 and and the political role that a lot of those companies ended up assuming but benjamin's point is that that all that talk is great for the people who are in control of these mechanisms and who are actually steering the ship and that um, you know you talk about facial recognition, she also uses the example of um uh, sensors on hand sanitizer that there were a lot of them that can 't sense uh black skin tone because mm-hmm. of uh, the way that they 're designed or um or even just something like on uh, google maps um, there 's a tweet that went out i can 't remember who wrote it where it says that hey my g p s just told me to turn on to Malcolm Ten Road. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 that guy says at that point I knew there was not a single black programmer in that room because how the hell were you going to miss a detail like that? And then even on the subject of language, you know, I think about even something as simple as Google Translate, right? Which may have a Swahili option, but at least last time I checked, there's no Kamba. You know, there's no Luo. Yeah. You know, there there's nothing like that. And so, if you're someone who wanted to learn that, you know, let's say that you didn't grow up here in it or whatever. What's what's your mechanism for it in this supposedly endless space that we're told about? And what does that do for identity in an increasingly globalized world for people on the African Mm. continent? Because um, one of the things that I've found um, in my own report and in places like Kenya is that there can sometimes be this sense of um, I'm not sure what the word would be for, perhaps on we in a way where there can almost be a sense of like the rest of the world is not for us. Like there, there's a whole Mm. world moving out there and almost by design, we can't seem to participate in it, even if we want to, either because on a practical level, our institutions don't work or, everything that you're talking about right here. And so when it comes to the idea of like self-determination or a lot of these um, you know, development goals that we hear about, how are these, how do these barriers impact that and what kinds of challenges does that present in, um, in all these goals that, you know, governments or whomever want to advance?
1: Mm, okay. So let me start at Identity. I think that identity is very contextual and it's, it's absolutely absurd that our identity can in the, in, at the international platform or on a global level be perceived as, um, what is understood as identity in one context. And to try and explain that, let me tell you a bit of a story. When I was 19, just after finishing high school, I spent three months in Australia. I was working on an exchange project, and it was the first time in my life that I was in an environment where, as an African, I was the minority, right? Having been born and bred in Kenya and essentially lived here for majority of 19 years of my life... And then landed in Australia in Sydney in a in a very suburban neighborhood where me and my other um my fellow Kenyan who traveled with me were literally the two black people for a while. Um and this is actually where I realized I was black. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, with with I'll say Africans, at least people who've grown up in Africa, this is something that we can talk about and it's a, it's a recognizable shared experience. The time at which you realized you were Black. Um, and I say this again because I've grown up in a majority African environment where I wasn't Black. I was Luya i was many other things there were very many other labels that were put on me to define my identity and none of them was ever black but then the moment i landed on a different continent none of that mattered what mattered was i was black largely because of the sociopolitics of the world and who is dictating the identity that we all then don um and then last christmas i spent some time with my dad and we got to talking about his professional experience being someone who's um, worked in the government of Kenya for literally his whole career, let's say 30 years. And he narrated to me experiences of um, tribalism where he potentially, he'd applied for a job, was shortlisted, um, three people made the shortlist and then the person who gets awarded the job is not even someone who was on the application roster for the role. It's someone who is of the tribe or ethnicity of whoever is awarding the role. So he speaks of a professional experience where his identity and his ethnic identity in particular has heavily um, played a role in whether he accessed some things versus did not access some things, whether he was on the right side of the government or the other side of the government. Um, and this is very different from my professional experiences where, again, it's it's the same as when I went to Australia for the first time. I I closed this laptop and then, you know, I'm just Kathleen. I'm a Luya girl living in the coast in Kilifi, which is, um, you know, not where my people are from, but then it's a certain identity. But then the moment I opened this laptop, then... I'm a black woman working in AI who's based in Kinifi in Kenya and it's absurd, it's, it's laughable, but then it's part of what digital platforms make possible. Um, it makes possible that I'm able to evade the ethnic political dynamics of being who I am in Kenya in a professional workspace but then it also means that when I get onto the internet, I sort of have to contend with who I am on the internet. And all that is, is a black woman, right? It's an identity that's born of a very Western context that has um, little to do with me, except everything to do with me because I interact on on digital platforms. Um, so I realize that it is making possible new realities which are both good and bad. Um I'm a huge believer in decentralized AI being the the correct way to build AI, right? Because again I'll go back to the first thing I said which is that identity can be very contextual. So why should I be submitted to my identity based on a Western context, when I don't live there, I'm not from there, my lived reality is actually very different. Why can't my identity be much more localized? Um And from an AI perspective, I think that needs to mean that we give communities much more autonomy when it comes to building for themselves. Um, something I would love to see is for us to build much more decentralized AI and no longer leave it to, to big tech, but to rather empower local communities. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's driven through government or regional bodies. I don't know what it looks like, but then I think communities, um, are a great way to go. Um, I've seen great models of community run organizations through the um the tech and developer communities on the continent. Um and again I've I've seen that evolved from capacity building measures to a point where with the deep planning in DABA, for example, one of the programs that we have is known as the Indaba X, where we empower um national communities at country level to have Indaba like events every year. And in the first year we ran that program, I think there were maybe 11 Indaba X's. And then in the next year we had that program, it had gone to something like 23 Indaba X's. And each Indaba X represents a country that has enough capacity, has a team that is able to, you know, step up and say we want you to host an Indaba X and go ahead and do that. We've, we've gone from a point of capacity building to a place where we now have critical mass there's more than 30 countries on the African continent that now have active AI communities and uh a good data point for this is the fact that they're able to hold in double x's um and then what comes next or what came next is then a need for much more specialized capacity building um and this is something that we've also seen evolved in the Indaba's because we started out having a poster session, which was optional actually. So every attendee to an Indaba could present a poster if they wanted to, or if they had work that they thought they could present as a poster. Um, and this evolved, this space evolved. And in one year in particular, I think it was 2019 actually, the 2019 Indaba was in Nairobi. And at that Indaba, there were so many papers on machine translation or generally NLP for African languages. And I think the reason why, again, it goes back to the fact that once we have basic skills, everybody is most likely to start working on the problems that are closest to them as an individual. It may be close in proximity, it may be close for sentimental reasons, but then comes the need for specialized capacity building because we then start to identify problems in our ecosystem, which are sort of low hanging fruit and then converge around the biggest things. Um, NLP is one of those things. I've also seen a community grow um, for computer vision, particularly in agriculture. So there's very many groups of researchers now doing um, image or crop classification for for rice, for cassava, for maize. Um, but we've seen that specialized capacity building and that has grown to much more access to funding because, um, people are now able to write or put together project proposals, have a credible number of partners that they can list as well as experience and then, you know, get funding to carry out some of these projects. Um, I do think one, um, huge challenge to actually getting to community-driven AI is compute because um, even if we did somehow manage to break down the behemoths that are big tech, I don't know that we'd be able to figure out a way for these local communities to have access to compute. Um, and even in the work that I've done with these communities, I see that as repeatedly a stumbling block. We'll have teams come together, put together a proposal, get funding and then realize that a they didn't allocate enough to compute or b they simply did not think that compute would be that huge a deal but then now need access to some compute so we have to start looking for cloud credits or something for them to continue their work and this is a very different reality from someone who sits at a western institution and sort of just has access to timeshare compute, which they can use for all their work. Right? So I think compute is is um so, so sorry, a huge just to, uh, block.
0: D- just just to clarify uh-huh. what you mean by that, do do you mean like the um like infrastructure to support like physical computers and machines that are accessible? Or um, what what kind of uh what, what what kind of support are you referring to there?
1: Not necessarily physical infrastructure, but computes to train ML models. It could be in the cloud. It could be that you have a physical GPU on your laptop. But then um, we do have a huge need for computes. In Masakane, for example, we largely use GCP, um, and that's because um, our relationships with individuals at Google has meant that it's very easy for us to say hey here's a project are you able to give them cloud credits for you know x period of time to run the experiments so we've been able to survive on goodwill in that case um, but then I do think about the fact that if you if you think about the case of open AI and their language model and the amount of compute that goes into building that versus you know, the cloud credits that we use to build the models that we do, it's it's almost incomparable that we're supposed to be competing in the same field and building the same tools. Um,
0: yeah. Well, it, it seems yeah. to me, if I could just uh, think, because I, when I was an undergrad, I studied um, economic development uh, on the African continent with a pu- public health focus in particular. But really, I think this this principle could apply that there seems to have long been this idea that, of like, say a global like free market, right? We, which is a loaded term. No one seems to know what that means anymore. But <laughs> at least in this context, it's often taken to mean that if if trade is just opened up across all countries of the world, that this is the path to prosperity. And what we figured out pretty quick was that, yeah, sure, maybe on paper that works, but paper is also a thin thing that goes all greasy when you rub there goes all see-through and you rub grease on it right and that Mm. for that philosophy to succeed all of these countries would have to be on an even playing field and the reality is they just weren't at the time and, and certainly throughout a lot of those projects and from what you're describing it sounds like it's a trap that can easily be fallen into in this tech space too that Tech is seen as this um, egalitarian space; everyone has access, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, yeah, on paper that might be the design, but is that the reality? And you know, those things seem to be distant cousins that ain't always on speaking terms, if you will. Yeah, and so it it really seems like a, a a repetition of some of those mistakes of the past when it comes to the idea of well, what constitutes the path forward to um, development for a lot of nations.
1: Um, I completely agree. And it actually brings me to the next thing I wanted to say, which is access to data, mm-hmm. right? Because there's not much data available that speaks to an African context, for example, but then there's much more if you compare it to a Western context. So it, it means that we also have much less data to innovate or build solutions for our context. But we now have a lot more funders directing their funding to datasets about local African contexts, right? Um, and I find it very interesting that the wording, it's, it's always painted as an effort that is going to be very beneficial to us as the locals, right? Because the datasets existing means that it's that much easier for the development of AI tools which could vastly change our realities. But then we never talk about who's going to build those AI tools because there's not as much funding or as much effort being put into ensuring that the upskilling activities are continuing in tandem to the dataset building such that when the data set is ready, the local populations are actually the ones who are able to take the sets and use them to build for our context, right? Um, it's again a half told story because the reality is that as soon as the data set exists, it's much easier for someone seated in a much more privileged context to take the data set, quickly build a solution and then come back and sell it to us. Um, which is unfair. Um yeah.
0: No, absolutely absolutely I definitely want to um, expand on that in some of the uh, paths forward that we're going to be seeing that's where we're going to head in our next segment stick with us on World Beat we'll be right back